So last week, we wrapped up our time in the book of Philippians. Um, Over the 10 weeks that we were covering the book, we spent our time looking at Paul's intensely personal letter. It was very personal, as Paul had actually led multiple people in that congregation to the Lord himself. So God God had used Paul to help build that congregation uh, with his hands right there and then. Now, he was calling them to step up as a church, to become mature believers in Christ, to become unified as a body, to be fixed on being servants of those around them and not just fixed on themselves. Jesus has first become a servant to us, and he is he who we are supposed to emulate. Now, this week, we're going to start our, book, our walk through the book of Colossians. That's why I got the title up there. It says Colossians. Now, Colossians is the third of four prison epistles. Well, we've said this before. We've talked about the prison epistles. Uh, the prison epistles, uh, there was Ephesians, and then Philippians, now Colossians, then finally, it'll be Philemon. Uh, so the, the next book that we'll go over was Philemon from that. Now, since this is a prison epistle, obviously we know that he wrote it while he was incarcerated. Uh, he was waiting his trial in Rome. This book was written about 62 A.D., 62 AD. Now, while the Philippians was written to people that Paul was intimately familiar with, he knew most of the congregation. Like I said, uh, he had led most of them to the Lord himself. Uh, This, on the other hand, he's writing to a congregation in Colossae that he has never met. And he has never been to the town of Colossae. He's never been there. He's never met these people. He's only heard of them through someone he happens to be in prison with. So he's heard of them and he's writing to them as a result. Now, though he had never been there, he knew two of its key members. Okay, so back in Paul's day, they didn't have cool, fancy church buildings. They Everybody met in their houses. And so one of the houses that they met in was Philemon. Yeah, that Philemon, okay? And so Philemon actually was doing a stint uh, in jail at the time uh, and had been released. Uh, and so Paul uh, knew that Philemon's house is where that congregation was meeting. He also knew one of the church leaders, uh, last time we talked about him, Epaphras, Epaphras as well. He spent time in jail. Apparently, Paul knows most of his contacts from jail. Anybody else? No, no, never mind. Okay, so um, so he knew all of these people for being jailed uh, for basically telling the gospel uh, is pretty much what happened, uh, though Philemon's case was slightly different. Um, he actually got saved while he was in jail, but that's another story for another day. But he knew this congregation through the telling of some friends, uh, and he was writing to them. Now, Colossae is in a defensive city uh, that it was made to defend an area because it was actually on the edge of the territory uh, and, uh, that the Rome uh, was in charge of. Now, in many ways, people called it the eastern gate to Asia Minor. So in many ways, um, this is a very great cultural center. A lot of ethnicity, a lot of cultures all coming together in a big melting pot. So there, even today, actually, you'll find heathenism, you'll find paganism, and you'll find what they call the secret cults or secret mystery religions. In fact, we find out pretty quickly through Paul's writing that he's actually writing this letter to combat what we know is a word called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a religious idea. Uh, basically, it's the first major heresy that tries to creep into the church, and he's trying to combat this. And what he's saying in this letter is a complete uh, a a rebuttal towards Gnosticism and what he's trying to do. So if you're unfamiliar with it, uh, Gnosticism at a 
is a cult of secret knowledge. You've probably heard of cults that have different secret knowledge. The religious leaders put in front of the people these different hoops that they have to hop through to be able to advance in their ranks. And, and you get secret knowledge that'll apparently help you in the afterlife or whatever happens afterwards in their journey. Now, while there are different branches of Gnosticism, uh, the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E, I had to look at my own notes, uh, the branch was actually prominent in uh, Colossae. Um, So everything that follows in this letter, uh, the way it's written, everything is to combat this idea. So that if you're familiar with this, it kind of helps. So each and every church battles with different forms of untruth. We, We all battle with untruth trying to seep in. Though what we directly confront may look different because the outside attacks can look different from church to church and age to age, subtle or direct, they all come from the same source that seeks to undermine the church. The devil is always trying to get his foot in and tear us apart. You see, we have a tightrope walk in front of us. Every church, including our own, has two major areas that we're trying to tightrope and not fall into. On one side, we have ritualism. On the other side, we avoid trying to fall into liberalism. Ritualism is, uh, comes from being a church that is so focused on the rules and the regulations, the do's and the don'ts, that we forget why we're doing what we're doing. And we become inward focused. We focus on ourselves. And we come focused on our appearance and the way others perceive us around us. And we're just inward focused. Now, If you're inward focused, you're stuck. And you actually have a very hard time being used by Jesus because you're focused on yourselves. And Jesus has a hard time using you for the gospel. And this religious uh, ritualism, uh, you could see clearly evidenced in both the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day. And you can probably think of other churches and religions of our day. Now, those Pharisees and Sadducees were focused on the law of Moses. So focused that they didn't even notice that the The Savior was there in their midst. Now, on the other side of that seesaw of ritualism is liberalism. So the church that is so lost in liberalism is lost because they're sidetracked trying to be relevant to the culture. And you become so relevant to the culture that you're no longer relevant as a Christian. You go so far that you're no longer a Christ follower. You're trying not to appear offensive so your gospel gets watered down. You no longer have words like sin in your salvation message. And in fact, in some places where liberalism is so predominant, anybody can be saved. Everybody's going to get to heaven one way or the other. And so on and so forth. And you lose the core of the gospel, why Jesus even went to the cross in the first place. Now, the church has had its work cut out for itself, and we are trying to avoid these pitfalls. Now, I had mentioned in our last sermon that a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. A faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. In every single one of his letters, Paul is always pointing towards a very practical side of living, uh, and the true is very much so for the Colossians as well. Now, our memory verse selection that I've selected for this verse, I actually went back and forth. It's actually shorter than our last one, so yay for that one. It's shorter, Um, but it's incredibly practical. I'll put it up and I'll explain it. It says, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. 
Now, like I said, I went back and forth between this and another verse. I was actually uh, going back and forth a lot, and I was, but I wanted ultimately something that we could put into practice as we walk out of these doors, something that you could put into practice and know that it is scripturally based, something that we could actually improve on our lives and make ourselves more mature Christians. So let's say these verses together. It's Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And that's Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Now, today we're going to be going over the first half of Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be going over verses 1 through 12. We'll be covering those verses, his opening statements, uh, his opening prayer for the church. Today, I've titled uh, this one, A Foundation of Truth. A Foundation of Truth. And we're going to be covering our position, our focus, and at the end, we're going to be actually kind of bullet pointing Paul's prayer as we wrap everything up. So first is our position. Now, if you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to always have a Bible. I try to put some verses on the screen. Some will actually be found just in your Bible. So today, we're just going to go straight into the Word. If you have it open, we're going to be reading Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. And I'll be reading this one out of the New King James as usual. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, not by the will of Timothy, but Timothy's with me. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so typical for Paul, he starts out the letter by saying he's an apostle of Jesus. He's trying to say, this is who I am, this is what I am about. Now, Paul starts this way, and we should probably ask ourselves, why does Paul always start this way? Why does he always make sure we know that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of the Father. He's with Timothy, uh, and in all reality, most likely Timothy was actually his scribe at this point. Most likely Timothy's actually the one writing it, and Paul was dictating. Now, he explains his authority and the reason why he's writing the letter. Paul, an apostle. I'm not just one of those people that follow God. I follow the teachings of Jesus Christ adamantly. I follow what he's doing. And I have the authority to teach others about Jesus Christ. He's actually giving his position of why and what he's about. Now, I find it interesting, as he says, by the will of God. It's not by the will of Paul. It's not by the will of the other disciples, but by the will of God. Paul says that he's given his marching orders directly from God. So why is this important? Well, here's a question. Have you ever seen someone in a role that they clearly aren't doing well in? You've probably found in your life probably somebody somewhere in a role that they probably shouldn't have been in. You ever been in a church setting where someone took on a leadership position only because it needed to be filled rather than because it was something they really wanted to do? I mean, and often in church settings, we find that something needs to happen so we fill that role out of need rather than feeling out of a calling that we should be there. How likely is it when we step out of a need, not out of a calling, how likely is it for us to succeed? Often we do okay, and sometimes in some cases we don't do well at all because we've filled a need immediately. I just stepped there because something had to happen, not because it was a call. 
We often find ourselves in positions where we are struggling through because we said yes to a need and not because of a call. Now, is anyone familiar with a situation that Jesus once encountered? He's sitting down at a meal table. Uh, He's having a meal with his friends. Random woman bursts in the door with a big old jug of perfume, starts anointing Jesus. Anybody familiar with this? You've probably heard this story. Maybe, maybe not. Okay, you're going to want to hold your finger here and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I'll give you the exact verses in just a second. Now, as you're finding your place, uh, let me give you some context. Jesus is in the town of Bethany. And he has been invited and he has accepted that invitation to eat uh, at a place called Simon the leper's house, which is actually interesting that he's a leper. Actually, we think he's a former leper. Another story for another day. So the meal is underway and this woman enters, just kind of takes over everything. And she sets her sights on Jesus as soon as she walks in the door, goes over, and this is what ensues. So what's happening here is in Matthew 26, Uh, Verses 8 through 9 is what I will read. So she's already started anointing him. It says, but when his disciples saw it, that she was anointing Jesus, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil may have been sold for much and given to the poor. So unless I'm wrong, the mindset of the disciples here is clearly they're fixed on the proper use of resources. I mean, who isn't? concerned about the proper use of money and valuables. We all want to properly use what God has given us. So is this what you gather as well? They're kind of like, Why? this could have been used so much better. Why this waste? They saw this, uh, this use of this perfume. So if you actually cross-reference this, you're going to find out this bottle of perfume that she's using on Jesus costs about a year's salary for the average worker. So an entire year's salary dumped on Jesus in one setting. And these guys are like, this could have gone to feed so many poor for so long. Why, are you, why would you allow this, Jesus? And they looked at this as wasteful spending. Because clearly, caring for the poor was a present need. It was something immediate. Couldn't Jesus see that? How did Jesus miss that? The disciples were caught up in what they perceived as a need. But Mary, we find out later, it's Mary, um, she alone understood the call. There's a difference between a need and a call. And Jesus was about to go on the cross to pay for our sins, and she alone seemed to get what was about to happen. The disciples were fixed on this material cost, and she was actually looking at a bigger picture. So you know what Mary did, and you know how the disciples responded, but what did Jesus do? Next verse, verse 10 says, But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Jesus had his eye on the bigger picture. He wasn't distracted at the time by what seemed to be a waste of resources. We get so distracted by the immediate that we forget to remember the important. The immediate comes up and it's blaring in our faces and we we make split-second decisions. I've bought knives at 2 a.m. for the wrong reasons. And you've probably made bad decisions as well because it seemed immediate and then later regretted it because it wasn't what was important. So we get distracted by the immediate and we forget to remember the important. And Paul understood this. If he was focused on the immediate, he would have been asking in all of his letters for food, for resources, for clothes, and he would have been asking for people to come to his side to help him to get out of jail. But he wasn't focused on those immediate needs. He was focused on the important. 
He was looking at the church as a whole and what needed to happen in the building of the church and the maturity that needed to happen in the churches that he was actually talking to. And he was focused on battling the untruth that can come into our walls. Now, it's easy to get absorbed by an idea and to forget a reason behind the idea. It's easy to get absorbed by an idea and forget the reason why we have that idea in the first place. So, our focus. After establishing who he is and his position for his authority, we find that Paul has personally not met the church, but that he and his team have been praying for them. So, I'll put this verse on the screen. The next verse, uh, Colossians 1.3, says, We give thanks to God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. So here, Paul is about to step into a prayer, and he's going to walk us through, and he's going to explain to us his reasoning for his prayer. However, before we get there, he wants us to know who he's praying to. We give thanks to the Lord God and Father of Lord Jesus Christ, praying for you always. So there are many religions out there that will tell you who to pray to. Some will say that we should be praying to the ancestors. Others will be saying that we need to pray to the saints and that they will intercede to God on our behalf. When Jesus told the disciples how to pray, do you remember what he said? He began, our heavenly father. He started with those specific words. In the book of Acts later on, we see Peter finally stepping into the man that Jesus knew that he could become. Remember Peter was the guy that always had his foot in his mouth? I mean, just the guy who was bumbling at everything. He finally learns to trust and step into the role that Jesus always knew that he could be, and he opens up praying to God the Father. And then we see this again and again in Paul's life. Every single time he prays to the same person, the Father. Paul puts this in every single letter that he prays. He prays to God the Father. Again and again throughout Scripture, all prayer is always directed to God the Father, specifically God the Father. Um, and I know he just said that twice. There are those who would reason otherwise. And however, their only example that we get is to pray to God the Father. In verses 4 to 5, Paul sets up a pattern that I think you're going to find very interesting. So let's actually read this together. So if you got your Bibles open, I said I was going to be going back and forth today. Going to keep you guys on your toes. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, so we've heard of you, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you have heard before in the word and truth of the gospel. So here, Paul is actually setting up a pattern for our growth. He starts by saying, we heard of your faith. So it starts with faith. Our journey with Christ starts here. Every single follower, we have to come to Christ in faith. That's, that's where our journey starts. It's the foundation of which we build everything else upon. And the next thing you're going to find as you're reading through this, he says, and of your love. We've heard of your faith and of your love. When we have a proper view of our faith and what we've been saved from, we end up having a proper display of love and affection towards those around us, realizing what God has pulled us through. Our natural response should be a love. It's an automatic response exactly when we realize what Jesus has, has taken us from and saved us from. Now, this love becomes a source of what we pour out on those around us. We should be pouring out that love that we first received on those around us. And we do this as we reflect what has been first given to us. And Paul even says that otherwhere. We receive it freely, so we, we give it freely. And we give what Jesus has first given to us. When we learn to serve Jesus first, it gives hope to those around us. When we learn to serve first, it gives hope to those around us. It displays the hope that is within us. So Paul says, because of this hope, everything 
Everything around us should be affected. So I'll put this one on the screen just so it's easy. It's a cycle. It's faith, hope, and love. And it kind of goes in a cycle. We start with faith. A proper faith will build a proper display of love, which displays that and actually builds hope in other people, which brings them to faith in Jesus. And then that cycle continues. And that's what he's saying is this is a cycle, properly fixed cycle. It builds not only our character, but also those around us as we live this out. If you have a proper view of love, you will develop a proper hope and it builds your faith and so on. Now, while this method has been laid out for us, unfortunately, many of us keep to, uh, we fail to keep a proper view as we approach life. The church is known for complaining more than it is for praising and for being nice to one another. Anybody know somebody or maybe know of another church that is better known for its complaining than for its praising? You probably don't need to raise your hand there. Unfortunately, um, we know a great many complainers, and we often think that we are not one of them. I often think that I am not a complainer. I am simply, and I tell myself this often, you may have done it before, I simply am discussing the situation and expressing my frustration. I am not complaining. I'm just discussing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you see how that works out. So Alicia and I, we were at conference uh, the other week in Washington, and we're talking about dealing with conflict in the church. As long as there are sinners in the church, which there's always going to be until Jesus comes back, there's always going to be conflict. There is probably someone right now in this room that you probably don't fully agree with, but we still come together as believers under one banner, even though we all have different opinions. And we have to deal with conflict at one point or another. Now, uh, while we were there uh, and we were talking about how to properly deal with our frustrations, one of the other pastors actually said a very interesting thing. He said in his house... They were complaining all the time, and they started getting this bitterness cycle in their home. And they started thinking about it, and they started trying to work it through. And what they have done is they've actually flipped everything on its head, and it's changed their entire house. In their home, you are only allowed to complain if it is immediately followed up by an honest prayer for the person in the situation. In their home, you can only complain if you immediately pray for the person in the situation. And what it has done is it has turned this negative cycle into an opportunity for praying for other people. And they constantly pray for other people in their home. Instead of saying, you know, I'm mad at so-and-so for this and then just leaving it, then you say, Lord, please help me in my anger. Help us to resolve the situation. And it's actually become a growth step in their house. Paul is an example of prayer in gracious words. He actually says only nice things about other people in his Gospels. You'll notice he never puts other Christians down throughout his letters. It's very interesting. He's always very upbeat. He does not put other Christians down. What profit would it be for us to go around, especially if you went to unbelievers and be like, have you heard of Gene? Do you know what Gene did? Sorry, Gene, I had to use you. But, I mean, what profit does it do for us to go around and put down other church members, especially around the unsaved? And if you're going to do it to me, and you and I are going to be talking about somebody, what are you going to do behind my back? And so this, this idea of putting people down is not something that Paul promotes. In fact, he always promotes putting people up and saying, hey, these are good things. We should be talking about other people. And you'll notice here in his own verses, he actually talks about some people. He says, as you learned from Epaphras, we talked about him, our dear fellow servant. Epaphras is part of this church, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the spirit. There's a lot of negativity going on these days. You guys probably opened up a newspaper, listened to the radio, or saw a political ad recently. You know that there is negativity going on these days. 
We don't always have nice things to say about the other humans. But Paul is purposely speaking well of another servant. So what image does it portray when we speak fair uh, and when we speak poorly of other people in the church? Our mouths can be used for blessings and they can be used for cursings. So our last point today is Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer. So verse 9 reads these words. I'll put this one on screen. He says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So Paul says, since the first day that we've heard of your faith, we've continued to be praying for you. Notice that he says that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So through Paul's words, we can find out a couple things that are really neat about our own faith. Number one, number one, we can know the will of God. Through Paul's prayer, we find out that we can know the will of God. He just prayed that we would be filled with all knowledge of the will of God meaning that it's obtainable for us to get the will of God in our lives, to actually understand it, to be able to follow it. We can't know the entire will, but the basic will that God has outlined for our lives, we can know. I think every person I have met has always struggled at one point or another with understanding what God's will is, maybe what the next step in life is right now. Now, in all reality, when I'm, when I'm honest, I just want directions. I want go here, do this, say that, eat this, not that. I mean, I, I love simple directions. But as a father who used to work very long hours, I used to come home, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, when I was done at the end of the day, I was very abrupt and very straightforward, and I was just do this, do that when I got home, because I just, I didn't want to waste time. I was tired at the end of the day. And I, and I missed my children's heart, and I missed my wife's heart. And could you imagine the heart of God that we miss if we just had instructions of go here and do this and do that? Instead, and I think God's aware of this, because if we just had instructions, we would never see his heart. And he gives us his word so that we can actually read through and understand his heart. Yes, we have our technology in front of us, and I can, I can do a Google search, will of God, and I can get all the Bible verses, this is the will of God for your life. But God designed it so that we would search the scriptures and know his heart, not just his will, because we want to know what the intentions are behind it. Also, we can know that there is no secret knowledge being hidden from us. Remember earlier that I said that this one was written to combat Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism uh, is about special or hidden knowledge. Paul's saying in his prayer that we can all be filled with all knowledge that we need to live our lives in all spiritual understanding. What we need has been provided for us. There's no special key to unlock. There's no special door that we have to go hunting for. God has given it all to us, and he's not hiding anything from us. There's no secret handshake. And so next, Paul says these words. He says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul says you can be a Christ follower on earth, and you can walk in a way that pleases God the Father. He also says that pleasing God comes from a way by acting upon what we know. And he calls this good works. You're going to notice here that Paul says good works come from somebody who already knows God, not to obtain a relationship with God. That's very important. God is saying here that you, he already knows your faith. Okay, he started with that and that these good works are a result of that faith. We don't do good works to obtain God's favor. We do it because we already have God's favor. That's a critical difference. In verse 11, Paul says, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. 
Paul says that he and his brethren are praying for the congregation because they knew that they were going to go through hard times. But we can have the strength in knowing that God will be with us through everything. Notice that God is the center here, that everything is being done or is asked for is the center of God's glory. And our final verse that we're going to go over here says this, and then we'll close. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He closes his prayer by giving thanks to God. If you look back at verse 3, you're going to notice he opened by giving thanks to God. He actually bookends by giving thanks to God. And he focuses everything solely on God the Father. He recognized that God the Father is the one who makes it so that we can be partakers of the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Today we've covered three areas. Our position, our focus, and Paul's prayer. And it's easy to discard the important things as we miss the mark on occasion. We each miss the mark on occasion. However, when we learn to focus on what is important and not be distracted by the immediate, we learn to lay a proper foundation of our faith. And we can live our lives in a way that we can start seeing the true God of the gospel as he's working through our lives. And he works through us and he delivers that hope to other people through our actions. In God, we can walk worthy as we learn in trail life. Through him, we are uplifted, and we are strengthened by his might, and it's to him alone that we give thanks. So today, I'm going to close with two questions. Number one, how do you deal with the immediate? We all have what feels like pressing situations. We have what feels like immediate, but it's not always important. There is a little book that I highly recommend, and uh, I have given this to other people before. It's called The Tyranny of the Urgent. We all struggle between what is important and what actually is needing right now. And this is actually a really neat book to help us to understand. Uh, if you've ever seen it, this is a Christian uh, that actually wrote this. This is an incredibly small book, as you can tell. Uh, so if I recommend a book, you know, it's, it's easy reading. I'm not trying to give you a tome. I mean, you can barely see it if I hold it sideways. He does a really good job explaining um, that which comes at us very quickly and seems really important, but it's really not. Because we all struggle with that. Uh, and it's by a guy named Hummel. Um, do you find yourself saying yes more often than you should? What would your life look like if you were able to master the balance of what to say yes and what to say no because you understood what was important and you were able to delay what felt like it had to be immediate? Final question is, how do you deal with conflict? How do you deal with conflict? Do you find yourself complaining or do you find yourself praying? When I'm honest... I justify my complaining. I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm really good at justifying my complaining. But what good does it do when I justify my own complaining? So the next time you find yourself begrudging somebody else, try praying for them as well. Try to flip this on its head. I guarantee that if you start in a habit of every time you start complaining about somebody that you immediately go into praying for them, it'll not only change your life, but I guarantee at one point it'll start changing theirs as well. Let's close in prayer. Father, I do thank you so much for the wisdom that we find through Paul's letters. Lord, help us to be a people who are seasoned with salt in what we say to one another. Father, help us to be a people who don't gripe and complain, but rather we learn to trust you and we pray for those around us. Father, help us to be mature Christians that lead others. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the Word of God is being preached and proclaimed. 
We are told by scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.